Wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to Bleeding Daylight. Please share this and other episodes with others. Find other episodes and links to our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter pages at bleedingdaylight.net. Is faith really blind or is there a way that we can wrestle with the big issues and find real answers? We'll explore that and other topics with today's guest with a few comments here and there from their pet dog. What do you do when the description on the box doesn't match up to what's inside? How do you respond when what's being promised isn't quite what's delivered? Melanie Sayward found that that was the case for her when it came to matters of faith. While she saw an amazing depth to the faith of those written about in the Christian scriptures, she found her own faith to be shallow. Her latest book, Deep Faith, Resilient Faith, is her journey to discover whether it's possible to experience and live the kind of faith she saw in the pages of the Bible. Melanie is an author and podcaster, and she joins me today on Bleeding Daylight. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Rodney. I'm really excited about chatting with you and and your listeners and whatnot. So yeah, thank you. It's probably helpful for people to know that when you came to write your latest book, you did that not as someone observing faith from the sidelines, but as someone who has already deeply engaged in faith. Tell me a little of your story. When did faith first become real for you? I'd say I became a Christian at about eight years old, but I would say that my kind of journey in faith was not typical in that um, I was brought up in a Hindu family. I had to, you know, do all of the things that are required of a a child that grows up in a Hindu family, Uh, but my parents happened to send me to a Christian school. So they were aware that I would be uh, learning about Jesus and all that kind of stuff, but they believed that the education that I would receive there would be really valuable. I am naturally a bit of a deep and philosophical kind of person, so I uh, was asking lots of questions about who is God and all that kind of stuff, when I was young, I wasn't exactly getting very clear answers from some of my Hindu relatives and whatnot about that question. And um, I was getting a great education in who Jesus is at school. And so I actually became a Christian while I was quite young, but I probably didn't really attend church properly until I was about 15. I find that my experience is one where I have observations of the non-Christian world and so I don't know if that makes a big difference in how I live out my faith. Of course, I actually started to really understand what faith meant as I was a teenager and I probably didn't have this like real kind of epiphany that the that God is more than just a moralistic kind of um, being that helps us decide what is good and what is right until I was about 19 when I was in a church service and I, f- I, I, I had this like thought, I, it was just sort of dawned on me suddenly, God is real. Oh, my gosh, God is real. It was completely different to what I had understood faith to be. I just kind of thought it was about being a good person. And then once I realised that God was real, it became about the fact that I was actually talking to a real person when I prayed and that this person who is real 
could be connected with. I could have a relationship with him beyond him telling me whether what I was doing was right or not. It's difficult for you perhaps to to say because we all grow up in our own families, we all grow up in our own way, believing that what we're surrounded with is normal. But I'm interested in your perspective of what it's like growing up in that tension of those two faiths, of that Hindu faith and that Christian faith, and and hearing different things from different people who are in your life at that stage. Yeah, look, I I can't say that the tension is uh, beautifully walked out when you're in it, but I think one of the hardest tensions I did really walk out in that scenario was learning to continue to honour my parents who had very different belief systems to me and still be able to live out my faith. And, you know, because there was a time where they weren't really particularly happy about the faith that I was pursuing because I was getting very vocal about my faith at home. There was a time where they started to limit how much I could go to church and and that was really hard for for me to work out because there were, you know, people at church were saying, oh, you need to be at church every Sunday. That's part of being a Christian. But I, I had to kind of balance that with, well, actually it's not possible for me to be at church every Sunday for me to continue to honour my parents was a journey of discernment in its own. I, I could sometimes, you know, like say to my parents, no, no, I'm going to go this Sunday and such and such is going to come and pick me up and they would be okay that on that day and then another day they would be like, no, you can't, you know, you've done too many things this week, no, you can't. So I'd have to discern from week to week what was appropriate for them to handle and for for me to to do. So thankfully I had some really good Christian friends around me and they understood the complexities of that and certainly didn't judge me for how I lived that out. I, I think when I was really young, I probably like there was some blurred lines between what was Hinduism and what was Christianity. Like I would still go and pray with my grandmothers to their Hindu gods and I, I wouldn't necessarily think that was different. It took some time like and maturity to understand that, oh, no, this is a different faith to what I believe and um, having the, the sort of respect to know when it was time for me to put some boundaries on that. And that was very difficult for some of my family members to, to handle when I had to start putting boundaries around certain things. So in some ways took a lot of courage from uh, um, encouragement from Paul And the things that he says around, you know, when he was in Rome, he did as the Romans. So I I realised that I did have to participate as someone in in a Hindu household with certain things and then I would have to limit certain other things. You know, so like, for instance, I, especially when I was a teenager, teenager would go to temple with my parents who, who aren't super religious Hindus either, but I may not go get prayed for or my mum would pray like every day and she would often pray over fruit that had been blessed and then she would give it out to all of us and sometimes I'd go no no it's okay I will have it because I believe that it is just a fruit I don't believe I'm ingesting something that could influence me and then other times I would be like uh yeah I'll eat it later and then I may not have eaten it so so you just had to like work out the details um but one thing I, I really am very, very passionate about is in, is honouring your parents. And I have 
absolutely honoured my parents with everything that I've done, even though, you know, like every book I've written, I I always say something to the effect of honouring my parents and even though they may never pick it up, but my parents have been amazing parents regardless of like what faith they've had and I think I'm grateful for lots of things they've done. And it's interesting, I'm picking up attention even there with the things that we sometimes hear coming from fellow Christians and from church members, like, for instance, you're being told, no, you must be at church every Sunday, and yet I don't see that in Scripture. I see, you know, don't put off the meeting together. And so there's that, but it doesn't say be in church every Sunday. As against what is clearly in Scripture, which is honour your parents. And again, there's no rules around what that means, but there's this tension between what is clearly stated in Scripture and what the church might teach. So I guess for you, you're having to find what is it that I need to to follow? Am I following what the church says or am I following what the Scriptures say? Yeah, hitting the nail on the head really. Like Because I did also go to a Christian school where I was surrounded by other kids that were brought up by Christian parents and I had a lot of exposure to some of the things that we often tell people you must do to be a Christian because sometimes it comes from fear, I think, sometimes for parents. I had to kind of uh, walk that ground of what is actually true, like what is uh, things that we expect and tell uh, people because that behaviour helps us be obedient to God and what is actually true, what the scriptures say. You kind of know that there's, and this is you know something I observed, I guess, when I have been in Christian community, is that when you have been brought up in Christian families amongst Christian friends and family and cousins and all the rest of it, your faith can get very like uh, submerged with expectations around who you are and who you are as a child and what you're supposed to do. There's these expectations that aren't necessarily biblical, but it's what's been projected on you because this is the society that you're a part of. So when you haven't been brought up in that society, you kind of go, oh, where did they get that from? Is that actually what scripture says? And so I think like my whole faith journey has been one of what is the actual truth? As I'm sure we will talk about, I've had many things happen in my life that have been troublesome and hard and difficult. And I have been told that the faith that I can have and experience in Jesus is one that can transform my life and it can heal me and it can comfort me and it can make me become a conqueror. So then what is the real truth that produces that life? That's really the question I'm often asking and in some ways where this book has come from because I've gone, hang on, hang on, there there are some really deep truths in Scripture that if we really, really believed it would transform our life, but we can't just continue going with this status quo belief and believing something just because that's what we've been told um, in our, you know, culture for eons of years. We have to search for that deeper understanding of not just of the scriptures but what it looks like in reality how would we live differently if we really bought this if we really believed that our salvation secures us heaven if our salvation actually means that we do not die as Jesus says like how do you grapple yeah in my entire time being in in church say for instance I had never come across that scripture except for in my own devotional time And I'd never heard someone say, 
that Jesus says you do not die? Like how do we actually reconcile such a staggering truth and how would we live differently? Because that's the truth that transforms, not the stuff that's rules, you know, like the you got to be at church every day, you got to go and pray every day, you've got to read your Bible every day. All of these are great habits. Are they the truth that sets us free? Maybe not. I'd love to look at what brought you to the point of saying, I need to write this book, but maybe to get everyone on the same page. I want to read something that you've written that I think might connect with many listeners. You say, comparatively today, we have more resources and opportunities than we could possibly imagine, and yet a completely faithful life inspired by the gospel can still elude us. We have our YouVersion Bible apps and personal reading plans and can connect up to listen to the most insightful preachers anywhere at any time. We have copious amounts of professionally developed worship. We have pretty and inspiring posters available en masse, and a short visit to your local Christian bookstore will reveal a myriad of paraphernalia from water bottles to mints encased with biblical precepts. We have thousands of churches across our cities. We actually have more choice than the early church could have imagined. Most of us are ridiculously wealthy in comparison to the people of those days, and yet the substance of our faith is so hollow. Now, that's a fairly sobering look at the kind of Christianity that many of us would recognise, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is definitely. You know, I'm obviously being a little bit comical in some of the things that I say, but I have to admit I've always been a little bit like weirded out by the fact that you can go to a Christian bookstore and there's mints with biblical verses or something, you know. In some ways this is um, not too different to society in general. We have so many options and and yet the, the I don't think the issue has ever been options. I don't think it's the fact that we need more variety and we need more choice. We already have the truths of the Bible of Jesus and what he's done for us in scripture. We just don't necessarily get deep enough in trying to to appropriate what that means in our life and experience it. Some of the things that the time that we actually require to really you know dwell in those thoughts of again those biblical precepts it it takes time it really takes time so the fact that we have so many options kind of seems very typical of our society in general that we live very fast paced and we have lots of things to choose and lots of things to decide but we don't necessarily go deep and allow ourselves to really contemplate what something means And I think I even use an example in one of the chapters uh, about seeking and the fact that I love Google and I've learned so many things because of Google, but we are in most cases committed to five minutes to find out the answer to something. That's the span of concentration and energy we have to understand an issue. And uh, my generation is even worse than everybody else. Like even big topics like abortion or gay marriage, we'll commit five minutes of research and then we think we know everything about it. Whereas our, you know, predecessors and and previous generations, you know, one person might spend 20 years researching a topic to understand what it means. So we don't, we really just don't know how to live deep because we're always so fast and trying to get skim on the surface and get as much information as we can, assuming that more information is the answer. But maybe more information isn't. Maybe that's like part of the problem. So I, I guess like the challenge that that particular uh, paragraph that you shared there is to pause for a second and kind of go, well, how come? 
why is it that we have all of this and yet something still feels like it's missing? You know, I, t- I talk to a lot of young people and a lot of people, you know, especially in my generation and even some in older generations and I find that this is one of the most common statements that I hear, something's missing. Something is missing. Something's not right. Something isn't right about how we are living out faith. And what was the moment for you? What were the difficult times that you were facing that caused you to have this crisis of faith and say, this is just not working? What What were the things you were experiencing at the time? The major one that I think precipitated this book was when I finished up working on a church staff. I've been a passionate believer. I absolutely love the Bible, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the church that I was at had, uh, I guess you could call it a, a conflict. We had many uh, staff members leave and I was one of the staff members that stayed behind. But the aftermath of all of that was really messy and it was, you know, not very good. And I found myself quite shocked at how Christians could behave when they were hurt. And I'm not saying that I'm any better. I certainly, you know, have not behaved well when I've been in a place of hurt and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Certainly, like in the last year I was there, I was very confronted, I guess, by the things that we would do and justify when something like a church conflict happens. I ended up finishing up and I finished up for very different reasons. My husband got promoted into this other job and we needed a bit more stability at home. But the first couple of months of being at home, I could not understand why or how this was happening, but I would just cry and I would sit in my chair and cry. It was sort of like I was purging some of the tension that was happening in that last season of being there. And um, I felt a real loss of identity, which I know a lot of ministers and leaders talk about when they step off a church staff, that they feel a bit of a loss of identity and they don't have the same kind of social connection as before. Anyway, like to try and comfort myself and to just keep inputting and keep coming back to Jesus, I was in the Word and I was reading the Word and and, um, I kept coming upon, you know, passages about suffering in the New Testament and I was just a bit blown away, like why is this not talked about? How come I've never seen this before? It was like I was seeing the Bible in a completely different light and especially the New Testament, you know, Paul's letters and and whatnot. And some of the things that he says for me to live is Christ but to die is gain and I'm reading that and I'm going, what in the world? Like I do not think that way. I don't think that way. I think to live you know, is, you know, to to die is definitely not gay. I don't think of my Christian life that way. And so I was having this confrontation of myself of what's going on? There is a gap. There is a massive gap between the beliefs I've had and the way I've lived out my faith, especially in the last five years when I was in ministry and then coming out of it, and what I see in Scripture. It is actually so staggering that it, it kind of forced me to take stock. And so the following sort of three, four years after that, this kind of thinking was just underpinning everything that was going on in my in my relationship with God. I was going, you know, God, like you, you say, like Jesus, you say that um, the person who is unwilling to give up on his, his mother or his father, and, and of course, you know, the definition of that when you go and look at the context is, not having attachments to 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 anything that is greater than the attachment we have to God. But I was looking at it going, 
no, that's not what I have been living and it's also not what I've been being taught. And so there was no way I could come to that revelation if I was just in that environment being taught the way I was and listening to the messages I was and going and, and living that Christian lifestyle, you know, go to church and doing the worship and then serving and doing this and doing that. I had to actually process it in that time with God and be real that I I can't just read this book and pretend that those things aren't there. It demands my attention. It demands that I ask some questions. And so really, like, this book was actually quite an arduous journey to write because I was digging, trying to force myself to look at these things that are actually really uncomfortable in our middle-class nature kind of lifestyle to confront. When we look at Jesus in the scriptures, he goes around upsetting a whole lot of religious leaders because he turns the world upside down. What they believe is winning, he says, no, that's losing, and everything is turned upside down. Why do you think we've come full circle and so much of the church is trying to say, no, winning is what the world says is winning, but you can do that through Christ? Whereas Jesus says, no, 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 we've got to turn everything upside down. Why do you think we've lost touch with that upside down world of Jesus Christ? I think some of it has got to do with our desire to want to live a comfortable life. We are looking for things that are going to give us this kind of immediate sense of peace and this immediate sense of joy instead of recognising that the things that Christ actually asks of us are uncomfortable. They may become our, you know, every day, but they are uncomfortable to begin with. There is a culture too that, you know, I can't deny that there is a culture in church and in denominations and the rest of it where the leaders may be getting a little bit too comfortable and a little bit too entitled with what their positions are that they have. And, and I'm saying that as a person who has been in that culture and also lived that way too. I certainly was entitled and I see a lot of evidence of that. The priority has changed. Our priorities have changed. We aren't always thinking about what is truly for God's glory, you know, especially in church ministry. Like we're often just trying to grow and we're trying to uh, achieve these visions and these goals and these missions that we put in place and we're running 100 miles an hour and assuming that God's on the same page as us. But we haven't tried to we have a step back, back to recognise that actually some of those things we have just adopted some pharisaical behaviours to get there. We haven't gone, hey, this is actually this this has actually got to be led by God and not necessarily you know driven by us. I think there is a lot of stuff going on, and it's easier to go on the sort of legalistic framework of you just got to do this, 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 and then life will work out for you. I think that is actually easier than recognising that, no, we have this countercultural lifestyle that Jesus has given us to live and actually within that there's not actually a lot of guarantee that everything's going to work out perfectly. It's so, you know, amusing to me that we can we can actually think that life will work out good for us when even the people who we go to for, you know, our education, which I'm talking about people like the Apostle Paul, things did not work out for him, uh, you know, and he's probably the guy that we love, you know, hearing the most because he's so inspiring and he's so um, powerful with what he says and he went into Jerusalem when he knew he was going to be attacked. Like that's what faith produces, not 
the kind of, you know, getting a comfortable life kind of thing. So as you start to write this book, what are your readers going to take away from it? How are they going to start to engage when they start reading this book, Deep Faith, Resilient Faith? My hope is that, firstly, that they will start to look at Scripture with different eyes, with a different set of eyes, different perspective. They're not looking at Scripture to answer their desires for a a good life, a comfortable life. Now, I'm not saying that life is not good. It is good. But the abundant life is a little bit different to what we think it is. It's not... It's about the abundance of experience, of living life with Jesus, of that, you know, that kind of thing. I'm hoping that they will start to look at Scripture with the kind of desire to see what is really here. What is, let's not just read Scripture assuming that that's what this means. What is Christ really trying to tell us in here? You know, it's that question of what are we really? A new perspective on hardship. Because one of the things I talk about a lot in this book is that it was the hardship that um, that I went through that really came before the the revelation. You know, hardship is it's it's not fun. It's definitely not something we want to run towards. But it does fuel our faith in that times of being in the desert, it forces us to question. It forces us to see things and to question things that we didn't see before. More than anything, I really just genuinely want people to experience God in a deeper way. You're certainly someone that likes to grapple with the difficult. When we look, for instance, at your your two previous books, there's Ministry Stinks, One Leader's Journey from Despair to Joy, and Disillusion, When You Get Lost, following Jesus, and even your podcast, The Pink Elephant, you're talking about issues that we generally don't look at in the church. Do you think that this kind of way of thinking comes out of the fact that you've had to to grapple with two sides of faith? There is the, the Hindu faith that you're brought up in, and yet your Christian faith, which you've come to realize is real and embrace? Yeah, absolutely. I think the fact that I grew up in a completely different uh, religious tradition has, like, made me really sort of go, well, a lot of Christian people grow up their whole life as Christians and it's not until they get to college that they realise that there's even all this whole bunch of other people out there that believe something different to them and they're challenged in their faith because they realise that. Whereas I had that challenge going up through the whole process, you know, I haven't been able to just shut my eyes off to the fact that there's a whole other world out there. And I think what it has made me realise is that, the things in scripture, the gospel is good news. It is good news. I'm saying that as someone who is both inside and has been outside of that faith circle. And it is good news. And so we need to know why it's good news. It's the good news for the whole world, not just us. And if we are like living out a mediocre faith, we need to know why it's good and we need to understand why it's good. I think I grapple because I know deep down, because I've seen in contrast to my Hindu upbringing, that what we have is the best. It's the good news. It is worth it. I have a sneaking suspicion that a lot of the time we embrace a shallow Christianity because we are trying to see what's in it for us in this world now. And you mentioned before that as you started to explore scripture, you came across passages such as the fact that if we are in Jesus, we never die. Do you think that part of the problem is that although we pay lip service to it, we don't fully embrace this idea of there's an eternity, that this life is only a small dot 
in the face of eternity. As much as we do complain about the lifestyles we have, about money and all that kind of stuff, we do live in relative comfort. And so the idea that there could be something that is so much better than this is actually hard for us to grapple with, I think, because we're very attached to this life. I was actually talking to my husband about this the other day about the fact that I still want to eat pasta in Italy for the first time and I still want to go and travel and do all this kind of stuff. But when Jesus was on earth, he was here for 33 years. He had a short life. His priorities were not to see the most of the world that he could. He wasn't attached to what is here. So I think this idea of eternity is not something we confront often because we're actually just so centred in the now and what we can achieve now and what we can have in this moment as though this moment is what is actually going to make us feel better. And, you know, some of that is we are very attached to our feelings. We assume that, you know, feelings are much more powerful than we think they are and yet they are also created by God, something that he has too. We're very centred in the now because we can have things now. And I do think you're right. I think that overshadows the whole concept of eternity and that there is actually this life beyond this and that life beyond this is supposed to inform how we live now but we have the opposite happening we have the reverse tell me about your podcast the pink elephant and the 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 thinking behind it i've discovered that i have a bit of a skill at being able to identify the things that nobody wants to talk about that actually if we did talk about it would probably make a great deal of difference to how we experience life. And so I used to experience that when I was in church ministry, when I used to work in corporate work. You know, that just seems to be a bit of my flavour, I guess. The reason I started the podcast was because there was these unspoken things. like So you talk about biblical concepts, like really basic biblical concepts. Now, if you go to a church and you hear them preached about, you'll sit there as a Christian and go, oh, yeah, I've heard all this before. But my argument is, is that, but have we really heard? Do we really understand what peace is? Because I can tell you now we don't have a lot of it. There are some things that we are blind to in how we approach these kind of topics that are, are meaning that we are missing the deepness and the richness of the revelation that could be in our lives. I'm often going, what am I not seeing? What am I not seeing about peace? How come I don't experience peace? What is it that I haven't recognised is there in the discussion of peace in Scripture and therefore I'm not seeing happen in my own life? And so that's really where I'm coming from. And so time and time again it it comes back to this um, overall theme, which I obviously talk about in this book, which is depth. There is this lack of depth in how we look at these big central topics. Like one of probably one of the big ones um, was fear. Episode I did on fear in the last um, season. The early church, the belief that we were saved, was completely defining to how they lived. Like it changed everything. Yet we can go, oh yeah, we've you know we've given our lives to Christ. Cool, awesome. Let's. Okay, so and now you've got to read your Bible and pray and you've got to do this and that's what it means to be a Christian. So we bypass what it really means to be saved. You know, how should that change how we think? Um, and so that's really what where I'm coming from with the podcast and I'm probably a little bit more trying to 
focus on like what are the things standing in the way of us understanding this idea whereas with the book I'm sort of coming from a slightly different angle I'm more talking about how do we sustain ourselves and live and be believers that are so committed to God and and sustain this for life so if people want to get hold of the pink elephant listen to some of the episodes or to read some of your books including the latest deep faith resilient faith where's the easiest place for people to find you so you can jump onto my website which is uh, Mel J Sayward and Sayward is spelled S A W A R D.com I'm also on Instagram and on Facebook. The Pink Elephant Podcast is on all like major podcast providers. So it's on Spotify, it's on Apple Podcasts. And then the book, it's going to be out to purchase from Kurong and Word Bookstore and all that kind of stuff within a matter of weeks. Melanie, it has been a delight to talk to you to explore some of the things that you've been exploring. So I want to say thank you for spending time with us. I will put links in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Rodney. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.